Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said, and I'm host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Riley Costigan-Humes and uh, Isaac Stackhouse-Wheeler about their translation of Serhii Jadan's The Orphanage. The novel is translated from Ukrainian, and it was published by Yale University Press in 2021. Uh, Riley Costigan-Humes and Isaac Stackhouse-Wheeler are a team of literary translators who met as undergraduates at uh, Haverford College. They work with both Ukrainian and Russian and are best known for their renderings of novels by uh, Serhii Jadan, including Baroshilov Grad, published by Deep Vellum and Mesopotamia, published by Yale University Press. Uh, Hello, uh, Riley and Isaac, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on this translation. Thanks. And uh, I would like to start with you telling us a little bit about how you how you chose this particular translation and how you chose your profession as translators. Well, we can start with uh, why we chose to translate this particular book, since that's probably what your audience is most interested in. There's a phrase that Riley and I throw around a lot when we're talking about what projects we want to take on, which is uh, it's a travesty that this isn't in English. We have to be able to say that phrase about a book in order to take it on as a translation project. We have to feel that uh, a book deserves to be available to English readers. And that couldn't have been more true for this particular book. It's a truly unique novel that needed to be available to the English language world. We don't know of any other treatment of the experience of war from a civilian perspective that's quite equivalent to internet. And we felt that it wasn't just something we wanted to translate, but something that we could enhance the English literary world by translating. Mm-hmm. Thank you, and Isaac I- Riley. I think when it comes uh, to Jadan's uh, prose and Jadan's work uh, in general, um, he, um, I, I started reading uh, him in uh, Russian translation, actually, when I was an undergraduate uh, at Haverford, uh, and I became so obsessed uh, with his work uh, and just uh, so enthralled um, uh, by you know, his imagery and his particularly unique style that uh, he was actually the reason why I decided uh, to kind of teach myself to uh, read in Ukrainian um, at first. Um, and gradually I started by you know, reading some interviews with him uh, in Ukrainian and using like Google Translate uh, into, into Russian because I was more comfortable with Russian. And then uh, eventually, you know, I was reading some short stories by him and um, at, at, at a certain point, I you know, was able to uh, develop uh, a certain degree of proficiency in you know, reading Ukrainian and also you know, speaking and understanding it pretty well. 
And uh, so Zhidan was kind of the, when I think of Ukrainian, I, it's very closely uh, intertwined with Zhidan in his work. And uh, he, uh, so for, and then kind of funnily enough, Zhidan was the person who motivated me to translate other Ukrainian authors, contemporary Ukrainian authors like Andrei Lyubka, um, we, uh, Isaac and I, uh, translated a novel uh, by by him also, and it was it was funny that we both were Russian majors in college, but then we wound up actually translating more contemporary uh, Ukrainian literature because that was what um, that was what spoke to us, and that's what uh, with Zhidan, especially this is the third novel that we've translated uh, by him. Um, you know, it's it kind of completely consumed uh, our lives uh, for several years. Um, and uh, when we were translating Mesopotamia together, Isaac even came to visit me. And, you know, we did these very intense uh, editing sessions together. Um, and I think it kind of it always comes down to, you know, when you ask yourself, like, who do I want to translate and why do I want to translate this? Uh, this particular book, um, there, you you feel this burning desire to uh, give uh, give as many English readers access to this work as possible because uh, you know in some way it transformed your own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some way, it just uh, kind of revolutionized um, your perception of literature uh, in certain ways, and you want to. Uh, you want to pass along that feeling to others, and also you want your mom to read the book. Um, <laughs> so wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm still thinking about this comment that was first made by uh, Isaac that uh, uh, you felt like uh, it's important to make this book available to uh, English speakers, and the descriptions which are included in the back of this book are quite uh, um, wonderful. For example, Timothy Snyder says that Sergei Zhidan is one of the most important creators of European culture at work today. Um, so. Again, without as we agreed that we will try not to disclose any kind of details that would somehow spoil uh, the reading experience for those who didn't have um, this chance to read this book. Uh, what's this book for you? Yes, you did mention that it somehow transformed you, uh, transformed you maybe uh, on some linguistic level or maybe on some ideological level. I'm, uh, I'm not sure. But um, how would you describe what was the most... Um, um, what was the most um, Im- uh, impressive about this book uh, for you, or what? What's this detail that some, somehow transformed you, and in what regard? You brought up the word ideology there, and I think that's a very interesting place to start because one of the most worthwhile things about the orphanage is that it manages to be simultaneously a novel about Ukraine at war, which is an innately political subject, while still being a profoundly non-propagandistic novel. It's a a novel that inevitably deals with issues of national identity, but it does it in a way that is humane rather than ideological, I would say. Probably the most pronounced example of how that works on a granular level is the way Zidane goes to great lengths to never refer to uh, uh, 
this uh, as a, as a war novel, this is a book where uh, what flag is flying over a particular location is very important. But Jidan makes a point to never say Ukrainian flag or Russian flag or separatist flag when he's describing these scenes. That information is given to the reader by context. There's a very memorable moment where the protagonist is approaching the school where he works and he sees a military vehicle parked in front of it. And rather than saying the flag on the Jeep was Ukrainian, Jadon says the flag on the Jeep was the same as the one flying above the school. So uh, national identity and uh, political sides are invoked in this book, but they're done so on a human level rather than an ideological level. And, and also for, for me personally, when uh, you know, I was reading about uh, Pasha, the protagonist, who's a Ukrainian, a Ukrainian teacher who doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily speak the language, he doesn't really have a very clear, um, he doesn't take a stand necessarily. He's in no way heroic um, in, in this novel. I think that we all kind of assume that if we were in this situation or if we, we were in... Um, a war, especially if you're, you know, especially if you're a man who feels like they could still fight, um, that you would really take, you know, take a side and you would stand up for your country and you'd defend uh, your country. But in actuality, I think that this novel, it definitely pushed me to, to make the realization that I probably would be a lot like Pasha, that I would be a passive bystander. I would uh, just think to myself, leave me alone. I want to do my translations. You know, I want to do my other, I want to do my other work. Let me, you know, let me teach kids English. I, I'm an ESL teacher also, um, you know, and I would just want to be left alone, um, much like Pasha. And I think that um, once you read this novel, you realize that the vast majority of people uh, are, are actually like that during times of war, but that's not at least, you know, of the I've, uh, you know, of the books about war that I read growing up, none were really like this in the sense that it was always like there was very clear good and bad, and there was the hero uh, who, uh, you know, basically was um, uh, fighting for the good guys. But for in Shadan's novel, kind of you have a vague idea of who the good guys are, but you're not quite 100 percent sure and it's very um on the one hand you know uh who who you would support but you wouldn't necessarily uh, you realize that it's a lot more complicated it's the issue is uh, uh, extremely complex and you um aren't necessarily going to you know take up arms you know tomorrow um uh, you probably would be a little bit disoriented much like pasha and you wouldn't really understand uh, even how to broach this situation you you just would want to kind of hide and ignore it um and uh avoid avoid the conflict basically and pretend it doesn't exist like pasha did for so long yeah, I, I want think... to emphasize part of the point you're making there, Riley. You mentioned at the beginning how uh, Pasha, the protagonist, is a teacher of the Ukrainian language. The way that is handled in this book, which 
depicts a character in a situation where one's native language or one's choices about which language to use are innately going to be politicized is very important. Uh, to my mind, one of the most striking moments in the book is when Pasha is in his classroom teaching Ukrainian, but then he steps out into the hallway and begins speaking in Russian. But then later in that same scene, there is a soldier who comes to help defend his school who speaks Ukrainian in a way that makes it clear that it isn't his first language and that it's one that he's trying to learn. So there's a great deal of, of care taken to show that there are people who occupy different linguistic positions, uh, occupying different uh, take, uh, occupying different positions in regard to the conflict and in regard to where their loyalties lie. And Jidan explores that question in a way that, again, is humane rather than ideological and is, uh, is explored from a, from a human level perspective, not a broader or more abstract one. Mm-hmm. And uh, this sense of disorientation was mentioned in one of your remarks. And um, there are a lot of episodes uh, where it's mentioned that at the beginning, when the attacks just started or there were some sort of activities, uh, no one really uh, knew what to do or how to respond. Or many people just, um, as um, Riley pointed out, uh, chose not to respond. However, there are a couple of episodes um, during day one when uh, Pasha thinks about his sense of responsibility. And he is put in the situation where he actually has to somehow perform this responsibility. Although he may be uh, scared or he doesn't want to do that. So how would you interpret this uh, sense of responsibility that is somehow imposed on him? Or does he embrace? Does he embrace this sense of? I think to a certain degree he is um, extremely reluctant uh, at first uh, when he is forced to take responsibility for this uh, group of more vulnerable uh, people at the beginning of the novel. um, Trying to avoid spoilers, Um, he. uh, uh, Well, I'll actually back up. The very beginning of the novel, um, he just doesn't want to assume any responsibility at all. And when, you know, these soldiers come to a school, he's just like, eh, you guys take care of this on your own. I don't want to be involved. Like, just, you know, I'm going to go home. Um, And then gradually, gradually throughout the course of the novel, he starts to assume more and more responsibility and realize that um, people are counting on him or he's counting on himself to make a decision to do something and you know when uh he decides to you know to pick up um uh uh, pick up his nephew and take him home um uh, you know that's like the ultimate decision and that's the ultimate um um uh, that's the ultimate case for being responsible uh and assuming responsibility that uh it's less of uh, responsibility is less of an abstract concept for for pasha when it involves his family and um that's what serves as a turning point for him of that he you know, he, he assumes responsibility at first uh, for his family, and then it branches out to uh, the people in his community. Um, uh, and that's what I think makes uh, the special, uh, this, the, the novel special in general, is that 
um, in certain ways, it's almost like a coming of age novel for Pasha was a 35 year old man <laughs> um, that uh, you, you wouldn't expect him to uh, make such, you know, rapid experience, such rapid growth over the course of three days. But um, he, he has so many somewhat traumatic experiences or uh, transformative experiences that uh, at the end of the day, he has to make a decision. He has to step up. Uh, and he does that kind of, he, uh, he, he dips his toes in first and then eventually he just has to dive, you know, dive in uh, head first, basically. Uh, I uh, have this follow-up question on national identity, as Sergei Jadan is very well known for his strong political stance uh, in the current um, Russian-Ukrainian conflict. And uh, in the description, which is included um, in this um, volume, his novel is uh, compared to uh, some works by Hemingway uh, and uh, Kerouac. But when I was reading this book, um, Cormac McCarthy came to mind, and especially his book, The Road, and uh, particularly because of this um, uh, place, this universe, which is a national. And of course, some descriptions reminds of some apocalyptic descriptions while they traveling across the area, across the um, region, and there is the sense of of course, loneliness, there is this heavy sense of fear as well. So what does Jadan do with this sense of national identity? Does he subvert it? Does he invite us to rethink national identity? Does he uh, invite us to uh, somehow revisit uh, the understanding of national identity which prevailed probably in Ukraine before the events of 2014? Well, first of all, I'd like to start by saying that I think your comparison to Cormac McCarthy's The Road is very astute, uh, not just because this is a story about traveling through an apocalyptic environment, but also because of the way the narrative handles trauma. Uh, I'd say both The Road and The Orphanage uh, could be described as uh, an adult figure and an adolescent figure encountering a series of escalating traumas over the course of the narrative. Uh, the biggest difference, I think, lies in how uh, Cormac McCarthy will unflinchingly describe exactly what hideous thing is happening before the eyes of his characters, whereas Jadon is describing a protagonist who is uh, trying to get through this situation uh, while being traumatized as little as possible himself, but even more importantly, while preventing the nephew character from being traumatized. So I'd say if you compared the books to the language of cinematography where Cormac McCarthy's camera has these long shots that linger on monstrous things that are happening uh, Jadon has a protagonist whose camera is trying to dart away from them, but isn't able to because of the situation he's in. And the fact that he isn't able to look away actually ties into the question about national identity. Uh, I think one of the issues that Jadon is trying to bring up vis-a-vis -vis national identity is citizenship and the responsibility of participation in political life. There's a, again, I'll avoid spoilers, but there's a moment where T-34 
two characters are discussing the broader political situation and the broader shape of the war and treating it as something that doesn't involve them. And then a third character just asks, when was the last time you voted? And that's a devastating question to ask in that context because it puts the responsibility for their country back on them as citizens. And I think uh, this this question of national identity, um, Jadon is always pushed for a more all-encompassing sense of uh, being Ukrainian in general. And he doesn't like to impose uh, this very kind of heavy-handed and uh, limiting uh, view of um, what it means uh, to be Ukrainian, what it means to feel uh, that you are Ukrainian, uh, because uh, for him, you, you have individuals who probably grew up, you know, grew up speaking Russian, for example, who maybe make the switch uh, to speaking Ukrainian, and they, for them, this is important, and this is uh, what helps them feel more attached to this particular piece of land is the fact that they're, uh, you know, speaking the language that maybe their grandparents uh, spoke, but then uh, their parents uh, felt you know, ashamed of the fact that, uh, or felt like they they were maybe, uh, I don't know, in some ways maybe even bullied for uh, speaking Ukrainian, especially during uh, the Soviet period. And in, in, in general, um, you know, there's a really good scene towards the end of the novel when a character who clearly did not um, grow up or did not live uh, most of his life in uh, Ukraine uh, feels almost this ex- extreme you know, national pride and a sense of patriotism um, when you wouldn't necessarily expect that. You wouldn't think that he would embrace uh, this sense of um, uh, sense of uh, being Ukrainian um, is nothing about his background necessarily indicates he would. Um, and uh, I think that's what Jadon is really trying to put, uh, point out. And one, one thing that is very, uh, very tricky for Jadon and he navigates it quite well is he never, uh, he never slips into demonizing the Russian-speaking characters. Um, he doesn't feel the need to do that. Um, and you know, even the way he speaks about how people speak uh, is extremely delicate. And um, you know, instead of saying that he's speaking, you know, this pure, uh, sophisticated, uh, lyrical, you know, uh, expressive uh, Ukrainian, and this kind of uh, and that's the good character, uh, and then there's the the bad character, the bad guy who's you know speaking this you know, bastardized, um, uh, um, uh, maybe profanity uh, riddled uh, Russian, for example. He doesn't he doesn't feel the need to take these kind of cheap shots, um, and that for I, I I don't know how much the the of English reader who knows very little about the region will necessarily pick up on that. Um, but I don't know if, you know, that's maybe not that important. And I think that that, um, uh, you know, Shadan will hint at the fact that characters are speaking one language or the other, but um, he, he doesn't overemphasize it. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't beat you over the head with the fact that 
this guy is speaking one language or another, and even with dialogue, it's almost all in a more kind of uh, kind of standard Ukrainian. And uh, you maybe acknowledge the fact that it's kind of he's translating almost from from Russian, for example. He's translating from a mix of uh, Ukrainian and Russian into more standardized uh, Ukrainian, uh, more uh, not necessarily bookish, but more. Like, Kind of standard conversational Ukrainian, for example, um, and um, that, um, that that that's I think part of what makes Jadon's account of this particular region so humane mm-hmm. um, in in this the, uh, this conflict mm-hmm. as a whole. So Jadon's mm-hmm. uh, personal charity work is also very intimately bound up in that understanding of Ukrainian identity. He makes a great point of helping the civilian population in the separatist controlled areas as much as his organization can, and makes a great point of viewing them as fellow Ukrainians in distress rather than as enemies. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, he's often memorably said that it needs to be demonstrated to these people that their country hasn't forgotten its obligations to them. Uh, what was the most challenging part in terms of translating Jadan's works? Uh, at least for this novel, sometimes the language is very crisp and it's very concise. At some at other moments, there were some episodes of reflexivity or speculation, and uh, it was less quick or less fast, if we can describe it, uh, the development of language uh, in this in this way. Um, and... Uh, I'm wondering if that's something that you considered while translating. And another question which is connected with this, of course, well, we have to mention this uh, term, surjik, which uh, I, I personally don't like, but still, they, uh, let's maybe uh, um, describe it as a mixture of Russian and Ukrainian if uh, you had to somehow deal with these episodes, if particularly with this, with this novel. Um, in terms of our general approach uh, when we're dealing with uh, Surzhik, um it's not too prevalent um, in a lot of Shadan's novels, as I was just kind of um, uh, talking about. Um, but we, we try to uh, we try to render it into conversational uh, conversational American English mm-hmm. uh, without feeling the need to work in any sort of dialect, because that would be distorting the overall. Uh, feel, and we try not to make it sound too folksy because for Shadan's characters, you know, speaking Sojik is, is quite natural and it's not necessarily, they're, they're not necessarily making a big point. Uh, and, you know, our, our job as translators is to kind of find uh, this very unique uh, idiom, this very unique, um, these very unique turns of phrase, uh, turns of phrase that are not Kind of too specific to American English, but they uh, don't fall flat and they don't ring false to the American reader. So it's kind of somewhere. It's a very uh, it's a very narrow uh, area, and that's I think what makes the translation um, uh, read somewhat well. But um, that in, in going back to your point about some of the challenges, um, uh, one thing that was quite um, I would uh, I would say like exhilarating at times was um, trying to replicate a lot of Jadon's uh, alliteration 
and he had he would have a lot of consonant clusters even in his prose of he would have a lot of uh, words that had the same uh, same groups of, of sounds you know pretty much piled on top of each other in one sentence mm -hmm. and for um, and for Isaac who's a poet and uh, this this really resonated and this was something that um, I, I had to pay special attention to as I was reading uh, the Ukrainian and on the one hand it was particularly gratifying when we were able to find, you know, nice, uh, nice equivalents. Um, but uh, it, we, we couldn't necessarily just reach for uh, that first word um, that comes up when you, you know, look for uh, a, a translation of a Ukrainian word into English of like, you know, the, one of the first or second uh, words that's uh, used. And here I'd like to, um, uh, there's one example I'd, I'd like to, to give uh, here. Um, he, Zhidan, in, in the Ukrainian, he, he mentions about how he, he writes that автобус підкочується до зупинки злично зупиняється. So it's the зупинки злично зупиняється. And when, the way that we tried to render this in English was the bus, the bus steals up to the stop mm -hmm. like usual mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so the, the, there's the abundance of the s sounds in english um while there is the the, the z you know sound in, in the ukrainian and um you know steals up to is not necessarily uh, a one-to-one -one equivalent for you know uh, so of like it's just kind of stop um, and, um, you know, as we know, you know, like, like usual, that's pretty, that's a pretty standard translation, but we had to place it in the, in the sentence in a way that, uh, there were all the kind of S's piled on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were dozens and dozens of, uh, these examples throughout the whole entire novel. And, uh, at a certain point, sometimes, um, you know, it was it was tricky to preserve this, but it, it, it was you know at at the end we would be patting ourselves on the back and be like, yes, this is you know very gratifying because we were able to preserve what was special about Jadon's style that also translates very well into English because alliteration is a more common literary device in English than it is uh, in a lot of Slavic languages actually. So. Um, that was quite cool, but um, it was almost uh, paradoxically easy to reproduce the alliteration because it occurs so naturally in English. Uh, Riley was mentioning a moment ago that I was experiencing it from a poetry perspective. It made me think of uh, old Anglo-Saxon poetry that would use alliteration rather than rhyme, like a, a Ezra Pound's imitation of that style, which also includes a bus. He says skiddeth bus and sloppeth us that uh that particular kind of very english music emerging from a lyrical ukrainian text was a was a very peculiar effect to observe but a very gratifying one and hopefully one that readers will enjoy and, and there's one more example of uh, there's uh, you know there there are always um, a lot of tricky passages whenever uh, you're translating from Ukrainian into English just because uh, you know very 
even very basic phrases that don't seem to be all that complicated in the original uh, take a lot of kind of linguistic gymnastics. Um, and there was there was one section towards the end when uh, Pasha is um, talking to a doctor and talking about uh, a wounded soldier, and um, the doctor asks Pasha Pasha's um, very disoriented, has no idea what's going on. He's just kind of out of it. And he's in his own little world and he can't really process what's going on. The doctor just asks him, uh, like, uh, Vashki. He just says, you know, he just asks, you know, Vashki. And this was not, he wasn't referring to the soldier being heavy. Um, uh, he was referring to this being a severe case mm. or, you know, whether or not the, he was really in, uh, in bad shape. And, um, you know, Pasha answers like, oh, no, he's not too heavy. He's, he's about, you know, 150 pounds or so, or a little 160 pounds, something like that. And the doctor's like, no, dope. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> and and uh, we, we couldn't just say, um, we actually render, rendered it as, you know, um, but Pasha said that uh, he was like, oh, um, yeah, he's he's not into bad shape. So the, the doctor asks, uh, is he in bad shape? Yeah, is and he in bad says, shape? No, he seems pretty fit. Yeah, yeah. It's in the in in English we rendered as, you know, is he in bad shape? That's what the doctor asks. And then Pasha's like, nah, he looks pretty fit. Um and the doc and the doctor's like, damn it, you know, like what what I, I mean, what's wrong with him? You know, is something serious? Is he critical? And um like in the English, we had to stretch this out a little bit. We had to explain this a little bit more because, you know, in English, you can't you can't really ask one word questions as uh, as effectively as you can in in Ukrainian. Um, but th this was a very important dialogue to show that Pasha was just kind of clueless throughout the whole entire novel. He was just like, "Oh, where am I? What am I doing?" <laughs> and this was this was like a very um, key uh, dialogue that we had to pick at a little bit because it really uh, captured uh, Pasha's state of mind. Um, and um, if if we had just said something about like heavy, it probably wouldn't have really made much sense or the English reader would have been confused. Like, well, what, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't, what is this kind of a play on words that I don't really understand? And, um, cause it wasn't wordplay. It was Pasha just not connecting the dots. And we had to show how if Pasha spoke English, how he would not connect the dots mm -hmm. in English. Um, and, mm -hmm. I once had a chance to listen to an interview which was given by uh, Oksana Zabushko, and she was talking about uh, her works which were translated into English, and she mentioned that she somehow participates in the process. What about uh, Serhii Jadan? Um, does he participate in the process of translation? Do you consult him, or does he somehow express any interest in the, in the process? Um, he has a very hand, hands-off uh, approach. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's quite funny because we'll uh, ask him questions, uh, a lot of times yes or no questions. And sometimes there was actually one instance when I asked him, you know, uh, is it um, is it this or is it that? 
and he wrote back uh, uh, uh just probably mm-hmm. like you know like it was, and I think I think for for him uh, honestly uh, the fact that he's so hands off and he doesn't really want to be involved in the process actually as a translator has given me um, a lot um, and has given both of us um, a lot of freedom uh, because we don't feel like there's a, you know, the, the author's looking over our shoulder and uh, we can think to ourselves, you know, if Jadon had written this novel in English, what would he have done? You know, what would, what would, <laughs> what would Jadon do? <laughs> um, uh, that's the kind of the question that we ask. So, um, he, um, he's always very appreciative, uh, of the fact that, you know, we've taken such an interest in his work and translated several novels, but, um, he doesn't want to micromanage the process in any ways. I, as, as far as I understand, um, he is more involved in the German translation mm-hmm. because, you know, he has a very strong, uh, his very high level of proficiency in, in German. Uh, that is not the case, um, yet in, in English. Um, uh, so I, I think he just has to kind of say like, all right, guys, do your thing. You know, hopefully it'll turn out all right. Um, we yeah. let ourselves sort of be inspired by Jidan's own working style. He's a he's said in interviews that uh, the profession of a writer is less different than the profession of a soldier or a cab driver than someone might imagine. And he very much wants to not mystify or fetishize his profession. So we try to not mystify or fetishize ours as translators. We try to come at it from a workmanlike perspective when we're translating Jadon, because he writes in a very workmanlike way. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, it's an opportunity for me to get back to my first question about your choice of this profession as a translator. Uh, so how, how do you situate yourself in, the sto- in any story that you translate? As a, as a translator, so maybe just some professional um, question and uh, how you how you uh, locate your own style within stories that you translate. So what we always say to encapsulate our philosophy of translation is that we don't work for the writer, we work for the reader. Uh-huh. Uh, what that means is that our primary goal is always to make sure that the reader of our translation has the same experience that a reader of the original would have. Uh, That goal is positioned in opposition to, uh, that's a terrible phrase, that goal is the opposite of saying that we want to reproduce everything that the original does or we want to stick close to the actual architecture of the original text, uh, the standard by which we want our translation to be judged and by which we judge it as we work is the experience of the reader, not the text as a sort of static artifact, but rather the text as a machine that the reader runs by reading it. Also, um, in terms of... Going way back to your original question of you know why we be decided to become uh, literary translators, um, uh, I think especially when it comes to Ukrainian literature, you feel 
a certain sense of responsibility that um, if you took the t- if you took the time to learn Ukrainian or if you grew up speaking um, Ukrainian at home um, and you have a love of literature, um, at, at a certain point you feel obligated um, to uh, uh, replicate these works and uh, render these works uh, in in English uh, because you realize that like if you were one of the other 50 people in the world uh, uh, who uh, do this. If you don't uh, do it, uh, you know, this book just isn't going to find its way uh, into English. And um, when we were uh, translating uh, Andriy Nupka's uh, novel about the, the other uh, part, the Western part uh, of Ukraine, the far, west, uh, far Western part of Ukraine, I think we felt as though we had this noble mission that uh, we needed uh, to get this work into the hands of uh, English readers. And um, that's definitely the case with Shadan's work too, that um, it, this novel, um, it, um, you, you, you kind of feel, you feel this moral obligation almost mm-hmm. to, to a certain extent, That that sounds very, um, pretentious, I think, uh, but uh, that's kind of what it comes down to, and um, uh, you feel this more obligation maybe before the author, or um, in terms of uh, kind of your own um, your your own understanding of what it means to be a translator. We know that, uh, and um, it's. Uh, that uh, that feeling is what motivates you to uh, to translate literature. Is that um, you, um, you 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 can't imagine the fact that this is um, that you know millions and millions of people in the English speaking world uh, have no access uh, to this at all, and uh, you need to change this. You know you are kind of. Uh, you know, as a translator, you're kind of a missionary uh, in a certain extent. It's like when uh, when I was studying uh, Russian in college, uh, and I came back after a study uh, after six months abroad. I, it was my duty to explain to everyone all these kind of funky different ways in which uh, the Slavic people uh, perceive the world through language mm-hmm. and. Um, after two weeks of that, everyone told me to shut up. But um, that's the same. <laughs> you feel the same sense of duty when you're translating, you know, especially from Ukrainian. Um, uh, everyone except me told him to shut up, and now we translate books together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, is my understanding uh, correct that it was your initiative to translate the orphanage, whereas with Barashilov Grad, uh, Jadan reached out to you with this uh, kind of offer? Um, well, I started hounding Shadan a very long time ago, actually, about uh, translating his work, uh, and he, I, I, I still remember uh, a message I got from him. This was, I think, way back in maybe 2013 or 14. He said, "Let's try Varshilovka." Uh, uh, mm-hmm. That was all. That was all he wrote. He's very succinct mm-hmm. in his mm-hmm. emails. He said, "Let's try, let's try our shoulder. And I uh, and um, 
and at the time, um, uh, at the time, I was somewhat confident in my ability to, to read in Ukrainian and translate from Ukrainian. Uh, but the fact that he just kind of went with us and had uh, gave us um, um, gave us his vote uh, of approval was was extremely inspiring. Actually, um, that. He um, just seemed to kind of believe in the fact that uh, we were going to translate his work. And at first, um, he seemed skeptical about it. Uh, And then he he just kind of said to himself, I think he just kind of said to himself and to us at a certain point, like, well, just go for it, guys. Like, sure, why not? Um, I don't know, maybe 12 people will read it. Uh, But... Um, uh, I think you guys should be the ones to make sure that those 12 people uh, get an English text that is somewhat digestible. Um, and uh, that was, um, so, he, yeah, and then I, I, I went, to, uh, went to visit him in Kharkiv, um, and then uh, Isaac and I went to Kharkiv together when we were translating Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. and... Um, so Jadon has kind of always been somewhat involved in this process, but kind of, um, kind of behind the scenes, like he, and we've done a lot of readings with him and that's where, um, it felt like uh, the work really came alive, especially through Isaac's, uh, readings. So you flatter me. I remember one moment when, uh, Riley was stalking Jadon online he sent me to stock him in person at one of his readings in New York when uh, we were just barely beginning our correspondence with him. And I just came up to him after one of his readings and I could see him wondering, is, is this a crazed fan? Who is this guy? And a, a translator is the ultimate crazed fan. So he was quite right to be suspicious. <laughs> Um, so your new translation just came out as well of um, Andrei Lupka's uh, novel. Uh, and um, observing the uh, literary landscape, so to speak, in Ukraine right now, there is this sense of vibrancy. It's very vibrant, I would say. Uh, what novels, what other books would you like to translate? And usually I finish my uh, interviews with this question about your current projects as well. Um, in terms of uh, novels that we'd like to um, translate, I think that we probably will kind of stick to our authors for the time being, that uh, we'd like to translate more of Andrei's work. Uh, we you know, thoroughly enjoyed um, uh, uh, translating his latest novel. Uh, it was quite an epic journey to publication, <laughs> but eventually it did come out. Um, and um, I think also someone like Andrei is a very good ambassador for uh, Ukraine as a whole, and he is kind of the ultimate uh, cultural diplomat. Uh, and we, to a certain extent, uh, act as kind of a proxy uh, for him as, as translators. But, um, and I, I think that we'll probably translate, hopefully we'll translate one of his novels uh, at some point soon and one of Shadan's novels. And um, we, at this point, we, um, you know, I, I, I think that 
we need to kind of recover a little bit after uh, like these, you know, series of uh, publications. Um, but uh, with, yeah, with uh, uh, Ukraine's literary uh, scene in general, I mean, it's extremely, um, you know, it's, uh, it's extremely vibrant uh, at this, at this point. Um, and you know, we're hoping that, um, We'll get to translate uh, more Ukrainian authors um, in in the future, um, but we kind of have to be scouting them out uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit more. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Isaac, uh, I should mention that there is an excerpt from uh, another of Andrei Lupka's novels that we've translated that uh, was published by a wonderful literary magazine called Apophony. If, uh, if your audience are interested in uh, Andre's work outside of Karbid, there's a small excerpt of it that is available. That's a fascinating novel that deals with the problem of justice and the problem of how an individual citizen confronting corruption and injustice is meant to behave and is meant to make sense of that situation. So that's one that we'd definitely like to translate. There are also, as Riley said, some older novels of Jadon's that haven't appeared in English. And as we said at the beginning, it's a travesty that they aren't in English. Everything Jadon has written should be available to as many readers as it can get because he deserves all of them. And uh, last thing I should also mention is that uh, uh, sometimes um, both uh, Isaac and I have helped um, Hannah, um, one of uh, Hannah uh, Lelev, um, uh, translate some other uh, contemporary Ukrainian authors. Um, and uh, Markian Kamlish, um, he writes a lot about uh, Chernobyl and um I'm currently helping uh, Hannah right now uh, edit uh, a translation, and um, I think that uh, Markian is um, you know, Markian Kamish is this rising star, and he has been translated quite extensively into other languages. Um, and I'm, we're hoping that he will get some recognition uh, in English uh, too. So um, there's, um, you know, I, I, I think. Sometimes it's very hard to focus on, uh, you know, just one or two authors. You want to, um, and uh, you, you you want to translate a little bit of, you know, twenty different authors, but um, that's not necessarily realistic. Well, I look forward to reading your new translations then. And uh, thank you so much, Riley and Isaac, for this wonderful conversation. And of course, thank you for making uh, Serhii Jadan's novel, The Orphanage, available to the Anglophone audiences. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today I spoke with Riley Costigan-Humes and Isaac Stackhouse-Wheeler about their translation of Serhii Jadan's The Orphanage. The novel is translated from Ukrainian and is published by Yale University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.